0: Welcome to Food Connection, the podcast where we talk about all things food and cooking and chat with our favorite Phoenix chefs. I am Pascal Dioneau, the co-host with Danielle Sanders.
1: Now I'm ready. Okay, so welcome to episode 8 of Food Connection. So I thought it would be fun to talk about all of Pascal's crazy kitchen stories because he always casually mentions these stories over the last few years that i've worked here and you have some pretty funny and crazy ones that i think people would really enjoy hearing
0: yes uh, and this is all the all those other stories uh, that when i was uh, line cook and uh, then i became chef uh, and uh, most of these stories actually uh, took place in washington dc in various restaurants I arrived in Washington D.C. in 1975, uh, or 76 actually, and um, went to knock at the door of a restaurant called Rive Gauche at the time, it was the best French restaurant, and uh, managed to score a job. I just walked in there and I met the chef. Uh, I knew he was French, and I knew his name, and I introduced myself in French, and I said, I'm the new cook. And when he said, I don't need anyone, I said, that's okay, because I, I work for free. And I worked for about a week, and then finally he said, well, come back on Monday, I'll put you on the payroll. And it was actually a fun restaurant because um, we, uh, I mean, it was fun times. Um, Lots of celebrity at the time, it was really the, there was two, three French restaurants at the time in Washington, D.C., and uh, we were one of the oldest and uh, one of the most established. Also, his location right at the corner of Wisconsin and M in uh, Georgetown, the heart of Georgetown, was the perfect location. And I remember, actually, uh, we used to cook a lot for um, Senator Warner. Senator Warner, at the time, was married to Liz Taylor. And uh, whenever, of course, every night we all look at the reservation book and uh, see who was coming, how many people, how many large parties, etc. And whenever we saw Senator Warner on the list, I it just happened that uh, Lee Taylor always ate the same thing. She always had steak au poivre with cream spinach, and uh, we didn't have steak au poivre or cream spinach on the menu, so every time we cooked it, uh, especially and. Uh, I remember seeing the name, Senator Warner on the list. So I would ask the chef, I said, you want me to start a a cream spinach? No, no, what if she wants something else? And uh, sure enough, uh, the order came, steak au poivre and cream spinach every single time. It was kind of of fun. I remember one day, actually, Kissinger, it was at lunch, and uh, Dr. Kissinger came for lunch. It was actually during the uh, Reagan, uh, pardon me, uh, uh, wait a minute. Kissinger had. It was the, the the Carter administration. I got it. Uh, Kissinger had uh, worked with Ford, and uh, if you remember when uh, when Carter was elected, Kissinger kept Secret Service protection because uh, Arafat and the PLO had put a. Uh, um, a bounty on his head, and they said they were going to kill him. Anyway, so he came for lunch, even though it was, he was not working on the government anymore, but he had all the service, Secret, secret Service protection uh, and the usual thing. And I remember actually vividly that he had lunch with the, um, the ambassador of Pakistan, so the regular stuff. We have Secret Service in the kitchen, in the back door, the table next to them, at the front door, etc., etc., at the bar, all over the place. And when uh, lunch is over, Dr. Kissinger gets up and walks, as he's talking to the ambassador of Pakistan, walks towards the uh, the coat rack. Was in the winter and just stand there waiting for his coat. And of course, the matron and the girl uh, who uh, who handled the coat uh, check uh, just was shaking her head and, sh- and said he didn't have a coat. So, of course, the Metro just runs in there and said, give Dr. Kissinger his coat. And she said, I don't think he had a coat. So he said, well, did you have a coat? And um, he couldn't remember, so he turned to the Secret Service and he, and he asked, he said, did I have a coat? Secret Service just shrugged his shoulder and said, oh, great. So nobody remembers. So finally, there's three of them, the coat girl, Dr. Kissinger and the Metro in the closet uh, with all the coats, going through, looking at all the clo- coats. It was just hysterical. And uh, finally, couldn't find his coat. So finally, Kissinger gave his card to the metredi and said, I live here in Georgetown. Uh, here is my, uh, my card with my phone number. If you hear about my code, just give me a call. And he said, you would be nice enough not to, uh, you know, to, uh, not to spread my card everywhere. So, of course, five minutes later, the uh, metredi was in the kitchen showing the card to everybody. Oh, look, uh, he lives on P Street up there, blah, blah, blah. Ten minutes later, sure enough, the poor code girl was fired. And ten minutes later, we got a phone call from Kissinger apologizing, saying that his coat was at his house. Uh, so <laughs> it was kind of, so then they met really running down the street, running to try to uh, uh, rehire the poor uh, uh, young lady who worked at the coat check. Uh, that was a funny thing. I mean, I just, uh, I just uh, uh, can remember. I mean, we all came out in the dining room looking, trying to help pulling for the coat, and, uh, and Kissinger just going around, where is my coat? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a fun story. The um, another fun thing actually that happened in that restaurant okay. is we had a lot of top, uh, top lunch customer and um, the law firm, the, uh, the lobbyists and all those guys, tons of money. And uh, we had actually one um, I believe he passed away, uh, 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 Mr. James Patton. and Patton uh, was the principal from Patton, Patton and Bo. Uh, one of the top law firms in Washington, D.C. And when uh, uh, James Patton came for lunch, either he drove his Porsche or his Ferrari or his Rolls-Royce, uh, depending on the day. And uh, uh, always came with guests and always wanted caviar. At the time, actually, we got caviar from the Iranian embassy. Uh, one of the culture that was right before um, we had um, we had the problem with I guess it was during the Carter administration. Um, the uh, uh, right. Um, what am I talking about? Cap- uh-huh. Yes, the uh, right before the revolution in Iran, uh, we still had an embassy in Washington, D.C., and one of the attaché would take all the caviar and go sell it to the top restaurant. This is when actually uh, um, I made my education. I had my education on caviar. We just eat that stuff by the spoonful. When the guy came, he opened those pounds and half pounds of tins of caviar that came straight from Tehran. I mean, the best of the best. Anyway, once in a while, if we didn't have any caviar... And obviously when we served caviar to those guys, we had a tiny little um, ice carving and uh, uh, we put the can of caviar on the ice carving. There was a little light underneath. We brought the whole thing to the table. I mean, big big show for lunch. And the guy was just helping himself with a spoonful. We just put the can of caviar on the, on the scale before we sent it out, put it back on the scale when it came back and just charged them whatever they ate. And if we didn't have any caviar, then we would call one of the other top restaurant that most likely had some. And uh, the valet guy would just zoom down uh, M Street with either the Porsche or the Rolls-Rolls of James Patton because obviously while he was sitting for his caveat, I didn't need his car. (laughs) <laughs> so, so it was a, a classic. If we didn't have anything and we had to go down to K Street uh, to another restaurant, either Tiberio, an Italian restaurant, or Jean-Pierre, another restaurant, another French restaurant, uh, the Vallega would just zoom 80 miles an hour down M Street with a customer's car. Fun stuff that most people don't know about, about restaurants. I got actually a great, uh, a great story that involves the White House. When I was chef at the Hay-Adams uh, right across the street from the White House. And that was, this was the um, uh, Reagan I- uh, inauguration. I was there be, uh, between uh, 79 and 80. I did actually, in January, I did a party for uh, Reagan's inauguration. Anyway, the, um, the hotel had just been bought by a, um, a guy, um, a guy loaded with money, actually, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, David Murdoch. David Murdoch, uh, who is still around, actually. David Murdoch owns uh, one of those islands in um, oh. in Hawaii, uh-huh. uh, the island where uh, uh, Bill Gates got married. Okay. And I think it's Lanai. And at the time, David uh, Murdoch uh, was the major sh- shareholder of... Petro- Continental Petroleum, I think. He owned uh, Cannon Mills, the textile thing. He owns a whole bunch of hotels. And he was buying small hotels in, uh, in big cities and tried to make them really boutique hotels, really, really nice. And in the early 80s was uh, actually a great idea. Anyway, so we were refurbishing the, um, the Hay Adams one floor at a time. And uh, people probably know that the, one of the side of the Hay Adams faces the White House across the street from the park. And both the Hay Adams and the church actually across right across the street on 16th Street at the corner of 16th and Lafayette Park um, are the two only two buildings that are actually privately owned. All the others building around the park uh, belong to the government. So they're easy for the the White House to uh, to do surveillance on those. So I guess they keep a good eye, a close eye, on the Hay Adams and uh, the church. The church, the big old steep, uh, steeple, I don't think uh, anybody can just climb on that thing and pose any threat to the White House. But the, uh, the Hay Adams, the whole front faces the White House. And um, you realize that, first of all, every morning, the... the uh, the Secret Service gets a list of all the guests at the Hay Adams. Uh, anybody at the time I remember that had a that came from Cuba, from Libya, from uh, uh, Iran, from any of those countries. Anybody who had a name uh, that sounded Arabic or whatever uh, usually never got a room on that side. They always got a room on the side of the uh, 16th Street, and. Um, Anyway, so we had uh, the uh, the hotel, the floors were closed one at a time, and uh, we they were refurbishing the whole thing, putting marbles in the bathrooms and all that stuff. Since the owner owned uh, Cannon Mills, he actually, we, uh, we had some magnificent bathrobes. It was actually one of my old idea. I uh, came from the Ritz in Paris, and at the Ritz in Paris, they do all kinds of crazy stuff. Like I mean, normal stuff for a top hotel, like sizing the customer and keeping a an, uh, uh, keeping a note of the size of the customer that are a repeat customer, so you place in their room the appropriate size bathrobe. If it's a little guy and you give him a tall bathroom, it's stupid, or vice versa. So that's the kind of uh, a service that you get in those kind of hotels. At the um, at the Ritz, also they probably still do it. I don't know, but uh, forty years ago, uh, uh, we had a. a um, a greenhouse on the roof, and uh, they grew roses. And we had a gardener that grew roses all year round on the roof of the Ritz. And everywhere you went, there was a rose. You order a sandwich from service, it came with a rose on the tray. Uh, you order a full dinner, came with a rose. You uh, give your tuxedo to be pressed because you had to go out. It came back in a garment bag with a rose pin on it. Uh, so it was just, just, just a magnificent touch. So, I mentioned that to uh, when they had a meeting, so I said, okay, we're going to build a greenhouse on the roof, which that was shut down immediately as soon as the Secret Service, of course, heard about something built on the roof of the Haydams. It was out of the question. By the way, every time we went to the roof, or even if a mechanic had to go to the roof to fix the elevator or something, we had to call the White House and call the Secret Service because immediately they would know somebody was on the roof and they would give us a call and say, get that person off the roof immediately. Um... The um, So anyway, we, um, one night, we assumed that somebody working at the hotel decided to steal a pike of those uh, bathrobes. And they were really magnificent. And uh, so but, but we had no idea who it was. So that person just on the floor that was locked up to the customer opened the, open the window facing the White House. I think it was the third or fourth floor. And uh, one of the, the accomplices just stopped the car on uh, I Street, I guess. Yeah, it's High Street right there. And just jumped off the car, run to the thing, caught, some, <laughs> caught a bunch of, um, of uh, uh, towels, I mean, uh, bathrobes, and ran back to his car. And right at that point, one of the homeless guys who uh, sleeps on a bench in the park, grabbed him by the collar, flashed a Secret Service badge, and just realized that the guy was just stealing bathrobes, not a threat to the White House. So he brought him around uh, at the lobby of the front desk, flashed his, uh, you know, he had his uh, Secret Service badge around his neck, and he said, I just caught this guy stealing towels from you. And he just disappeared and went back (laughs) on his bench. So I thought it was pretty cool that uh, the whole thing took place in less than a minute. From the moment the window opened, they had, they figured to realize there was something going on, something dropped off the window. They immediately radio that guy who just uh, caught the the thief. I mean, it was pretty amazing. So every time now, if you ever... A uh, drive by or walk by Lafayette Park in front of the uh, White House, just wave to all those homeless guys because they're all cops. Don't
1: give them money. They
0: all, <laughs> don't, give them, uh, don't give them money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be beer money. They all, they're all on the, on the payroll from the government. So that was kind of a, a, a fun story. Uh, what else could we talk about? I've got another good story about. Um, and when I was a line cook, uh, we worked, uh, it was also Washington, D.C., and uh, we worked, uh, I worked in a restaurant where three French cooks on the line, which was kind of unusual for in a restaurant and, um, uh, in Washington, D.C. at the time. And, uh, and the three of us were actually trained in France. And we had one little guy, I uh, say so legal guy because he was about five foot tall, and uh, from Peru, who was the fish guy, Carlos. Uh, Carlos was a great guy and uh, a good cook, actually. The um, anyway, Gerard, the grill guy who worked during the day, always wore shorts. And uh, winter, summer, he always had shorts on with those big army boots underneath. So you can imagine when he had a, 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 a um, an apron on and you looked at him facing him, he looks goofy with his uh, his skinny hairy leg and his army boots uh, right below the apron, and he drove the chef crazy. And uh, the, shwe, the chef always, uh, every day, told him, you know, I want you to wear pants, I want you to wear pants. So anyway, one day he said, if you do more, you don't have pants, I'll fire you. So, so we'll talk about it. This is not right. Uh, he can't fire him uh, uh, because we just uh, he doesn't want to wear pants. So I said, well, we're going to have to, uh, we're gonna have to teach, him, teach him a lesson or we'll have to, to do something. So we came up, and the next morning, uh, the, the chef always walked in the kitchen at 11 o'clock in the morning, exactly. 11 sharp, poof, he walked in the door and uh, right at 11, five minutes before 11, the uh, four of us, or three of us, I forgot, I think we're four of us on the line, uh, we all removed our pants, we removed our underwear, we're butt naked with the apron on, and uh, and we're just cooking and doing our our prep and our mise en place, and sure enough, 11 o'clock, poof, the door swings open, the chef walks in, and we all turn facing him, and uh, so he sees us with an apron, skinny naked leg and shoes. So he assumes we're all wearing shorts uh, as a retaliation. And at a queue, we all turned around and continued cooking and all fla- and, and flashed him our bare butt uh, right on the line in the kitchen. I remember actually Irene was the, uh, the young lady who worked in the salad. Young lady from Haiti uh, also spoke French. She was pissing her pants. He was laughing so hard, and um, so we all turn around and show the guys our butts, the chefs our butt, and uh, he almost had a heart attack. And uh, he was like, his, ha- his arms across, holding the door, like preventing from anybody to come in. He said, could you imagine if the health department walked in right now? So we'll tell him, chef, we'll make, uh, we'll make the news. <laughs> we'll be famous by tonight. So he said, "Okay, okay, uh, you can wear shorts." So we all went on, <laughs> and put bad pants back on. But uh, that was a funny one. It would have been funny actually if anybody, any salesman, anybody uh, who walked in the kitchen at that time, but it just just didn't happen. Yeah, those are kind of the the few stories that I can actually uh, tell on the podcast. Some of the some others we can't really tell. But uh, funny thing actually. Uh, Remember one day when the um, immigration showed up at uh, Rive Gauche to pick up a a busboy. And I guess the busboy had there was a warrant, the judge had a warrant for his arrest uh, for for battery at home or something. So they came during the service. Uh, As soon as they opened the door, actually, they came with their cars, the valet guy. As soon as he opened the door, poof, they handcuffed him (laughs) and dragged him in the car. (laughs) <laughs> and then they came in and they told the metro dude. They said, "Listen, uh, this is immigration. We're looking for." And they gave the guy's name, um, and he said, "We don't, we don't want any panic. We don't want uh, any problems. Just call him, uh, your customer. I'm not even going to notice we're here." So obviously they had blocked the back door, the front door, and. Uh, it started to be, so uh, as soon as the kitchen here, immigration is here, people started flying all over the place, jumping into garbage cans. Uh, one guy just crawled pretty much in front of one of the Secret Service agents <laughs> and crawled and went to, to hide behind the ice machine. So finally they, got, they grabbed their guy. They didn't take anybody else, actually. And on the way out, actually, they just say, they told the guy, the, the maturity at the door, and they said, tell the guy behind the ice machine to come out. We're leaving, We're leaving now. You don't want him to dry out there. So it was, a, I mean, it was a funny, funny story when those guys, I mean, literally, it's the pot washer, dishwasher was just jumping in garbage cans and putting a sheet pan on top of their head. Uh, it, was, it was the funniest thing. So here, maybe one last, uh, one last little story, and uh, this did not happen in the restaurant where I worked, but we, the phone rang uh, in our kitchen and we uh, heard the story as it was happening. Um, it, uh, same thing, it was 1980, I think, and uh, that involved uh, Senator Ted Kennedy. And Senator Kennedy at the time, uh, he was divorced or separated from his wife. And it was the time where he was drinking uh, like a fish. And every time we had him as a guest, he was out of his gourd and completely out of control. I mean, the guy was just a mess. So anyway, the story is, he was in a restaurant on Capitol Hill, a little French restaurant. Uh, the maitre and the chef were both the owner. So as soon as uh, uh, somebody of his caliber, senator, congressman uh, would show up, the maitre d' usually t- uh, handled the table and um, so they sit him and his, um, and his lady friend at the little table and take the order. When they bring the first course, uh, when the maturity brings the first course, Kennedy and his guest is not sit- are not at the table anymore. So obviously he brings the food back in the kitchen. He said, hold on a second, something happened, he's not there, so maybe they're in the bathroom. So he wait five minutes, nobody comes out of the bathroom. He, he runs outside to see uh, uh, if they were in his car, in his limousine, which was in front of the door. And I think at the time, actually, those guys had phone. There was no cell phone, but they had tele- telephone in their cars. So probably, he probably figure he's on the phone, in his car, went out there, didn't see him, didn't see any of them, uh, neither uh, the senator or his, um, his friend. And finally, there was a private, little private room that they used as a private dining room, uh, which, of course, was not used that night, so uh, all dark in there with tables folded against the wall. You know, you see the picture. Chairs all piled up in a corner, etc. And uh, the matrioli just opened the door, flash, uh, turned the light on, and hears some noise, just peeks over and see the senator and his friends who were just on the floor, and the holy sir was a big white butt going up and down. <laughs> So he immediately just closed the door. And same thing, just there with his arms across the door, making sure nobody gets in. Wait till they're done. And uh, when they came, they sat down. He brought them their salad or their soup or whatever. And obviously, the phone in our kitchen was ringing. We knew the story. The senator was still sitting at the table. Half of the city knew, knew about the story already, at least in the restaurant. Yes, you do something crazy in a restaurant, um, it's going um, to be news real fast especially if you're a celebrity
1: (laughs) okay well this isn't a funny story you've told but i always thought it was cool when we eat mussels you said
0: oh yes years ago oh boy that was uh 1970 71 or 72. i was in paris Uh, my one of my best friend my best friend's father owned a bunch of restaurants and we actually ended up to go to cooking, to a hotel school together, and uh, we're still friends. The, the, when we got out of school, oh, that was before we went to school, one of his maitredi, uh, one of his sommelier had left to uh, become sommelier, sommelier at a restaurant in Paris called Beaufinger, in English it would be Boffinger, but Beaufinger is an old uh, brasserie de la Bastille, um, been around for about 100 years or maybe more. All classic restaurant. Great, uh, great food. And they have an incredible wine list. So when we knew that he was going to be in charge of the wine list in that restaurant, of course, our eyes went up and said, hey, we got to go for dinner and you got to take care of us. So he said, well, yes, why don't you? So the two of us save our, we saved our money. And we figured we're going to have to pay a fortune for food. But uh, we're going to have a, a free wine. And hopefully some good wine. So we show up that one night reservation and his friend uh, sits us at a banquet in the corner and said, I also have a surprise for you. The surprise was 10 minutes later, Salvador Dali walked in the dining room with two gorgeous babes, one at each arm. He's got his cape, he's got his cane, and uh, walked in, sat down, removed his cape, sat down right next to us in the booth next to us. And inevitably, of course, we had to to say hello. And uh, we actually had basically dinner with him, even though we were not at the same table. I remember we had a conversation on and off to have dinner. The guy was completely, completely wacky. And uh, he ate mussels. I remember he had mussels. And when he was finishing, when he was eating his mussels, he would pile up the uh, shells uh, inside one another and make a little, he made like a little sculpture on his plate. And uh, nothing had any shape or any reason or whatever. And uh, at one point, actually, one of the girls asked him, and he said, Maestro, what are you doing? And he said, I am building uh, Jacob's Ladder. Uh, This is the the connection between the earth and the heavens and the heavens. And uh, and he went on and on. And uh, we all listened to him and just shake our head and said, that's (laughs) wonderful. And uh, the guy was way out there. But uh, it was an incredible evening. Actually, I just remember the muscles, but I remember the crazy conversation. Think I would talk about just about anything and then suddenly switch uh, a topic completely or just stop talking about it. <laughs> completely, like uh, he's done with the conversation. I mean, very, very, uh, uh, very odd guy, obviously. Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that genius uh, uh, kind of... Uh, kind of grain that uh, we don't have or at least I don't have Uh, but it was it was a funny thing and we ended up actually living together and uh, I think we took the metro and he had he had a chauffeur Cadillac actually he had a Cadillac from the early 50s it was in the early 70s actually so the car was not that old but still cars from the 50s with the fins and an old Cadillac with the big fins in the back all black uh, was very unusual in Paris. I mean, you don't you mm-hmm. don't you didn't see cars that big uh, in Paris. So the guy was just... Uh, it was it was a, a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal evening, that's for sure. Something that I'll... Uh, and every time I eat mussels, actually, I just think of that evening. And usually when I eat mussels, I just pile them up inside one another. Yeah, fun story.
1: What about... So this isn't a restaurant story, but I always like the story about when you were in
0: boarding school and you made the crepes. Oh boy. Yeah, that was, uh, I was uh, 11. I was either 10 or 11 years old. And this was in Algiers, North Africa, uh, Algeria. It uh, was 11, so I must have been, it must have been like 1961. And it was right at the time of the independence, uh, the war in Algeria, the French were just leaving, the Arabs were taking over. I was even though I lived in the same city. I was actually in boarding school, because even though I lived twenty miles away, uh, because uh, the the city was just so dangerous. I mean, it was shooting uh, every day and bombing every day in the street. So my parents put me in boarding school, and I came home only on the weekend. And then one day, here to tell you that already I had uh, I had something about cooking in my mind, because when uh, uh, we talked about two or three other guys. Uh, um, we decided to make crepes one night uh, in the dorm, and uh, we had a big old dorm, which was like L-shaped, and at the, uh, the corner of the L was the bathroom, uh, or the, the, uh, the bathroom, the shower, the, and the bathroom, I mean, the, the, uh, was just a big old trough kind of thing with a with a pipe with a whole bunch of uh, of faucet and you just had your faucet and you brush your teeth and you brush your face right there on the on the thing Uh, and then showers in the back so we decided to do crepes. so I said you know you're gonna bring a little burner you bring a frying pan uh, you bring uh, and I'll bring the the crepe batter so on Sunday I was home and I asked my mom I said I need a, a, a a a jar of crack batter uh, for some project uh, at school. Of course, I didn't tell her that the project involved us at three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And uh, so she gave me the the jar of, uh, so I went with my mason jar of uh, crab batter. Good enough, the other two kids actually came through with a little gas burner and uh, the other one with a frying pan. So at three in the morning, the three of us are in the the shower, (laughs) starting making crepes. And uh, we had a little powdered sugar, and we're just uh, cooking our crepes and making crepes. And of course, we got a little louder. And there is always, for anybody who's been in boarding school, in Catholic school, uh, know that there is somewhere in a corner of the, of the dorm, a little alcove where there is the, uh, the apprentice priest or whatever he is, the seminary or whatever, seminary, the guy in, uh, in the, the apprentice priest, I don't know how to call him. And uh, which was usually some kind of a douchebag who hated every kid and uh, a, a tried to beat us up every, every chance he got. Um, so, of course, after a while we, uh, we got a little loud, so we woke him up. And uh, when we saw his flashlight on his little cubicle, that's when we just, boom, scattered all over the place. My bed wasn't too far away, so I jumped into my bed. Another kid, his bed was at the end of the of the dorm, so he started crawling from underneath everybody's bed to go into his. Uh, when the, uh, the 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 priest cop came out, he was with his flashlight, and uh, of course he came right to me, figuring know must be in it, uh, and uh, so <coughs> I <coughs> I see the um, the flashlight in my face, and I try to to stay calm with my eyes closed and pretend I'm asleep. Um, and then as soon as the flashlight goes away from me, I open my eyes, and then I see my friend who's under a bed, like three, four beds away from me, and he's underneath some, some other kid's bed, and, but his, his feet are sticking out <laughs> in the hallway. And of course, the, uh, the priest uh, saw him, so he walks, he, has an, he, has, he puts his flashlight on the gas feet, and he kicks it, he kicks the kid's feet with his own feet, <laughs> And and my friend just turned around and said, What? (laughs) And I burst out laughing, of course, thinking it's just hysterical. So, boom, we both caught. And uh, sure enough, it was really easy for him to figure out who was the third one. Um, So, we ended up spending the night standing up for like two and a half hours from like three in the morning until six in the morning or whatever, standing up in a hallway. It was just miserable. And uh, of course, the next day we were kicked out of school. Um, but the interesting story is, my mother actually—it was after the independence, um, uh, Algeria was his own country—and my mother was a vice consul at the ambassador at the embassy, and um, we had so my parents pleaded for me not to be thrown out of school completely. So they said we can not have it in boarding school. He just can come in the morning and go home at night. And, um, and the beauty of it is it was about 20 miles away from my parents' house. and So my parents really couldn't drive me. But because she was a consul, she had actually a car with a chauffeur. So the last months of school, I show up every morning in a, a black car. I was sitting in the back all by myself. And I had a chauffeur who drove me, an embassy chauffeur that drove me to school and picked me up. And uh, whenever I could, I would wave to the cop, uh, to the uh, to the priest, uh, uh, the guy who, uh, who 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 got us. I mean, it was it was a fun story. But already, yes, uh, at uh, ten, uh, 10 years old, already we were cooking crepes at three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun story. It'd be funny if the two guys that were with me uh, hear that podcast and uh, yeah. and say I remember that. I actually don't even remember their names. Yeah, we did some crazy stuff.
1: What about your army stories?
0: Oh, uh, like w- army, stories. army stories are not fun. It's just just <laughs> just just <laughs> to <laughs> show that the ar- army is a waste of time and a waste of money. And uh, if you want an army, just just get a good army, pay them well. I was in the army in France when, uh, when army was mandatory and everybody uh, age 18, every, man, every kid, boy age 18, uh, had to eventually go spend a year uh, in the French army. And uh, I really didn't want to do it, I had spent my youth in North Africa. Uh, Seeing during the war, I saw uh, people being killed. I saw bodies all over the streets. I uh, remember going to school one day and uh, have the, uh, the, the the director of the school there in the classroom and say, your little friend Philip is not showing up today. As a matter of fact, he's not showing up anytime because he was killed last night with his whole family, blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I saw what war was and it, 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 was, uh, it was not, I wasn't impressed. And it's not the kind of thing that uh, uh, any child uh, uh, should grow up with. So anyway, when I was called, also I just happened that when I was 16, I was flying. I was flying gliders. I didn't have a, a pilot license, but I had a glider pilot, pilot license. I did fly little little planes uh, with somebody else next to me, uh, because anyway, I could fly, but I actually I did not have a license for, for planes. Uh, and I was next on my, on my list. And uh, we flew in Chartres, uh, about 100 miles south of Paris. Chartres, uh, known for its beautiful cathedral, um, and we had on our little airfield right next to it was a little army base. And very often we had an army uh, kid, a kid who did this uh, military service for a year. He came and he flew our little planes and he would pull uh, pull us up uh, in gliders up in the sky when we did we were um, when we needed somebody. So the kid literally was putting hours on his own little uh, flying book. Uh, for free, he was flying for free. So I figured, well, if I really have to go to the nonsense, I might as well go in the Air Force and uh, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to eventually get my license for things since I already can fly and, uh, and fly. So I had put this on the, on the list when you get in. And I also said that I wanted to talk to the shrink. Um, I don't know why I said that out of 400 <laughs> kids I was the only one so the shrink had plenty of time to talk to me uh, military shrink which was probably the most reasonable of all the, uh, those idiots that I uh, uh, talked to because all the others were like uh, and again it was uh, uh, the 70s so many of them you know 10 years ago uh, it was not that long ago that uh, Algeria war was, was going on so and Vietnam before that uh, so many of those guys were actually old veterans of combat and all that stuff the, um, which is great, wonderful, uh, you know, I mean, I have real r- respect for me, uh, a career military, I just don't think uh, bringing kids for one year and dragging them in that thing doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, so anyway, I told the shrink that I didn't want to, uh, I would not, may not be responsible if they gave me a, uh, a weapon. And uh, so he told me, oh, you're a conscience objector, and, uh, which I had done my, uh, uh, my homework. If you're a conscience objector in France at the time, instead of doing one year in the army, you did two years. One year in jail, and then one year of public service, either working for the hospital, emptying bedpans, or working for the forest service, uh, you know, some bullshit. So um, I knew about that. I said, no, no, I'm not a conscience objector. I just, I don't know if I'm, uh, if I'll be, be responsible. I mean, I've seen the army, blah, blah, blah. So um, that was actually reasonable. And I, uh, and then I t- they told me that it was too late, uh, I was in, uh, they had no reason to, uh, to send me home. So what do you want to go? So I said, well, I want to go in the Air Force because of this and this reason. And then the imbecile that was interviewing me uh, told me, well, we don't need pilots, we train our own guys. And I said, well, here you go. Uh, <laughs> again, if, uh, if your army was well run, um, you could save money and, uh, and be a little more efficient, blah, blah, blah. So that's when he changed. the. Uh, color when he was writing, he changed to, he started writing with a red pen, and uh, that should have been a clue for me. Uh, Anyway, I ended up uh, doing my military service in Germany in a semi-disciplinary camp, but the crazy stuff is all the wise, uh, wise wise-ass like me, uh, they all send them to the same place. So, oh, another thing also is if you graduate from college, uh, obviously, you don't go to, uh, to the military service until you finish college. And if you graduate from college, you, uh, you can become an officer, you can become a lieutenant. So the guy explained that to me, he said, well, you want to go to college, when uh, after college you come, then you'll be, a, you'll be a lieutenant or under-lieutenant or whatever. And I said, well, what's the point? And uh, he said, well, you're an officer, you're not an enlisting man. And I said, well, I want to be with the guys. I don't want to be the, 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 the jerk that, uh, that everybody hates. And uh, so, of course, the guy was just pulling his hair, couldn't understand that anybody would refuse to become an officer. Um, so anyway, we ended up in that place. Uh, and the first day I was there, they didn't have enough uniform. So an army uh, without uniform is not a good thing when you have guys in jeans and polo shirt and sneakers. Um, so we could not do anything until for a couple of days until they got their truck full of uniform. So we were stuck in the barracks. And uh, of course, when you have nothing to do in the army, you clean. So we were actually in old uh, World War II Nazi uh, barracks, which were actually huge concrete things. And the floor, I remember the floor was concrete that had been painted red. And we waxed the concrete floor, I'll tell you how stupid stupid the whole thing is so so we're there in a the room there's a room about 15 beds uh, and big room and we have to wax the floor so there's one guy who's there in the in the room the leader of the stuff is about the way to go in a month or so so he knows the whole thing and he said there is one locker in the back with all the crap to clean all the cleaning product and the wax and all that stuff and uh, uh, there is an old blanket in there an old army blanket that you use to polish the floor and so the guy shows us how to do it. And I, uh, so I'm polishing the floor, then everybody, nine o'clock, everybody's supposed to be in bed, in bed. and one guy is standing up by the door, then you, uh, the evening officer, or whatever you call it, uh, the, the you know the sandman comes in, slammed the door open, and you're supposed to just uh, go and tap on every bed and make sure that everybody's present and everybody's gonna sleep and turn the light out, and that's the end of it. And as the guy slammed the door open, and comes with his big army boots. I said, hop up, hold on a second. We just cleaned the floor. Let me come pick you up. And I slide with my blanket next to the door, and I say, here, hop on behind me, let's go. <laughs> and uh, he starts screaming on top of us, like, what are you doing? We said, no, no, don't, we just walked. Don't walk on the floor. And um, of course, asked me my name, since I didn't have a uniform with my name on it. Uh, and uh, uh, it tells me that the next day, I have to go find in front of the colonel uh, of, the, uh, of the regiment to, uh, to get sentenced to, uh, to he was, uh, so he charged me with, although the thing is, he, tra- he didn't know what to charge me, so he charged me with destruction of small material belonging to the army, he was talking about the blanket. <laughs> so, so they find me a uniform real fast, uh, I was the only one in uniform. They taught me how to salute. And they said, okay, you've got to go to the colonel. You walk in, you salute. You remove your beret, and you talk, and this is what you say. And he'll, he'll know what it is for. So I said, okay. So um, <laughs> I go in front of the guy, salute. And I take my thing. And he's sitting there at his desk. And he has a um, an a, a ordinance officer, whatever. They all have a secretary, which is like a lieutenant, who stands next to him. So I told him, I said, um, you know, uh, first I call him sir because I didn't know you're supposed to call him uh, mon colonel in French. Mon, M-O-N, uh, is short for Monsieur mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in French in the army. So you say mon, which is like my general or my colonel, it's not my, it's short for Monsieur. So I call him, I call the guy Monsieur and of course, no, oh, it's colonel. It's uh, So they teach me real fast. and. Um, the, uh, so I explained the whole thing. I said, I'm polishing the floor. The guy comes and I told him, here, hop on because I don't want you to, uh, to destroy our floor. Um, and then he looks at me and he says, did you do the bathtub? So I said, I don't understand. And the two of them are laughing. And then the colonel said, you put one guy in the blanket and two others grab the corner, and you just slide it around. He said, it shines much faster, and he said, eventually you can just slide the guy across the room in the blanket. And I'm like, so my, my, my face lit up, and I smile, and I said, well, I'll try to remember, Colonel. And then the ordinance goes, no, that was just a joke. You're not supposed to do that. I said, well, wake up your mind, I don't know. And, uh, and finally he tells me that uh, the sentence uh, for destruction of material belonging to the army in case of war is death penalty. (laughs) So, good thing we were not in, good thing we were not during wartime. And uh, finally, he realized I was not, I didn't destroy a tank (laughs) or a radar installation. Uh, It was just an old blanket full of holes. So, I got probation, actually, the very first day. So... I stayed a year in that uh, that place and I found out real fast that actually if you do more than 30 days of jail at the time over 12 months, then uh, you stayed every, uh, for every extra day after 30 days, you stay half a day. So if you end up doing 40 days of jail, you stay an extra five days after everybody goes home, uh, uh, you stay five days more in jail. So uh, I, I said, no, there's no way I'm staying one more minute. And on 12 months, I did exactly 30 days of jail, (laughs) not 31, not 29, exactly 30 days throughout the whole whole year of of thing, and it was just a waste of money and a waste of time. I learned how to smoke, I learned how to drink, Uh, I learned how to lie. Every Sunday, except for the first three months, every Sunday I was in Paris, and uh, I was in the army in Baden-Baden, Germany, and every Sunday night... Uh, whether i had a ticket or not actually i would uh, i would escape and i would go to paris and i would come back on the on sunday night i spent some time in um, in between the uh, in a locked in the bathroom in the train when the controller was going by uh, i remember once i was on top in the uh, in the net behind suitcases uh, because i didn't have a ticket because uh, when you're in the army you, f- you 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 travel for free in the train but if you're not allowed to travel, obviously, you don't have a ticket. Um, and uh, it was pretty cool, actually, because I took the Orient Express uh, from Gare in Paris every Sunday night, and uh, the train that goes to Istanbul, and uh, got off at, uh, Baden, in Baden-Baden. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun time. We also spent our time, when I was in the army, we spent our time, uh, a, a lot of time uh, in the American PX in Germany. We had fake uh, officer cards, of course. And um, as French officer, we're allowed to go shop at the American PX. And the crazy thing is, we bought—I think we bought cases of Budweiser for like three dollars, for a whole case for uh, for twenty-four cans of Budweiser. Mm-hmm. And we lived in Germany, and we drank Budweiser. <laughs> Not <Isn't that> crazy. <laughs> and we did a, a traffic. I did a traffic. We did a traffic of stereo and all kinds of stuff we bought, and we actually used. The one of the guy from our promotion, we, uh, uh, I mean, we went into we went in together. After the uh, the boot camp, he was send, He was the chauffeur of one of the uh, 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 commandant or, or major or whatever. And regularly, the guy had to go to Strasbourg, France, to a uh, France, to a meeting. So whenever he had to uh, to go to Strasbourg, he would tell us, say, "Tomorrow, I'm going to Strasbourg to drop him off." So we would load up his car with stereos and stuff that we would buy uh, tax-free. And uh, because his car at the, at the border, uh, there was of course before the European Union, so there was borders, you had to stop uh, between Germany and France. But when the, uh, the car, the army car came, all the, the French uh, custom guys were just at attention saluting and it would just go by with all our, our stuff in the trunk. And our buddy would just drop him off at his meeting, then go to the, car, the train station, shove the stuff in uh, in lockers, and come and give us the key. And then the next day, we would go there and take the stuff and go sell it in Paris. Oh, yeah, was it was just a, 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 a school of vice. <laughs> army. But I'm all for a, a, a military, a professional army. I mean, instead of bringing kids like me for a year and waste, them, waste our time and teach us how to steal, lie, and smoke, uh, just... Uh, and list guys that really want to do it and pay them well. <laughs> okay, well we yeah, that has nothing to do with cooking, but... No.
1: Uh, this is Jeff Pascal's son, by the way. We started off with kitchen stories and we just we made it all the way to army stories.
2: I've got a good story that's not really either. Um, I just remember the uh, one, a, one of the big dinners we had here at the school I forgot for which event it was, but I know that it was for Claire's uh, workforce as well. A little bit, she had her boss there. Oh her. yeah. And all of a sudden. Oh yeah. And I was I was waiting on tables for that, and all of a sudden we just see a girl in a bikini, just runs through the school naked yeah. and well not like half naked, and she locks herself in one of the main bathrooms. I think she did the men's bathroom instead. So yeah. that, was a, that was an indicator that she was a little loose or frazzled. Frazzled, Yeah. And then right after her was some big, big beefy guy in a bathing suit coming in, <laughs> screaming, you know, where is she? Where is she? And this kind of this halted everything. So everyone was looking at this. And my dad just comes up, sees this, tells him, tells him to quietly leave or else he'll call the police. And this guy being you know, just Arizona bro going, no, no, I ain't leaving without her. So my dad just goes, goes back to the kitchen, gets a rolling pin, (laughs) comes up to him and goes, if you stay here one more minute, I'm going to bash your head in in with this. And he left and we got, we got the lady to kind of spill the beans a little bit. Apparently they, they were rafting down somewhere and they were driving home. And they had a fight. They had, they had a fight, and I guess she told him to pull over or whatever, and she she just ran out, and then found this place, which
0: isn't really like the closest place to the main road.
1: Yeah, not at
0: all. And yeah, he was gonna beat her up for some crazy reason. So we finally we called the cops, and when he find when he heard this called the cop, he took off. Yeah, they but were obviously she knew where he lived, so I think the cop got him. Yeah, they were
2: both high on something, but it it was just fun, it was a fun story to see because you just realize, you know the few stories you see where it's like, man, my dad's a badass.
0: <laughs> yeah, the guy was a, ta- a head taller than me, but again, with a rolling pin, I just, a couple of good wacko kids the face. And, but you can't really do that. I mean, uh, you can't start beating them up without asking them to leave. First. Especially in front of a party of Probably, yeah, 30. <laughs>
1: yeah. I remember hearing about that because, I think Donna said that he kept calling you old man. Yeah, 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 <laughs> She said the more yeah. he called you old yeah, man. Yeah. The more and the the I'm just thinking to myself, <laughs> you're
2: digging you're your own grave there, <laughs> the buddy.
1: So, thanks for joining us. That was lots of good stories. And stay tuned for next week. We're interviewing Carla Hall.
0: And happy Thanksgiving, everybody.
1: Well, this is probably going to come out after Thanksgiving. Okay, but... never mind. <laughs> and thanks for joining us, Jeff.
0: Yep. I didn't know it was still here.
1: You're still here. Thanks for listening to the Food Connection podcast. Food Connection is brought to you by Classic Cooking Academy in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can find us at www.ccacademy.edu.